Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, when I look back at the archive of Built to Sell Radio episodes, I think we're way too heavily, you know, weighted towards the technology company, fast growth, uh, venture funded, sold for a massive multiple. And the reality is that most companies really don't sell for massive multiples. They're, you know, not venture funded. And our next guest, Corey Tansom, really is, I think, more representative of the reality of most deals that get done. I mean, he built a company built it up to $16 million in revenue, 10 million of which was on recurring service contracts. When he went to sell the business, he got a little more than $10 million for it, which is you know the success story. But what you're gonna hear in a moment is how hard he fought to get that sale done. Uh, he had to lean on a dear friend at a crucial time uh, when he was getting pressure from his bank. It really is a cautionary tale of how we finance our businesses and of a man whose back was against the wall who found a way to struggle through and sell his business. Have a listen to the story of Corey Tansom. Corey Tansom, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. So, Corey, you had a company called Imaging Path. Tell us about what you did. You know, Imaging Path was a company I started in 1997. And it was started as a copier company, and over the years, it dwarfed into a technology company offering managed services and, and IT support services and remote monitoring. So, you would have worked with small, mid-sized companies who needed an IT guy, someone to call when the computers broke. That's correct. Got it. And so how did you make the morph from copier sort of dealer to IT services? How, how did that, because that, that's a, a pretty big pivot. What, what, what transpired there? Well, it was, a diffi- it was difficult for everybody in our industry. Uh, what happened is, you know, as copiers became multifunctional products that connected to the, to the Internet or to the uh, infrastructure of our clients, you know, it soon became obvious as things went along that uh, they needed more services from us. And you kind of had kind of a collision course on uh, different vendors in that space. So the, the copier dealerships had to embrace the new changes along with the margins being shrinking in the in the industry due to competition it was a new way to find more margin and more revenue so you would go to these small companies i mean did you have contracts for managed services so you'd have sort of a, an agreement that over a given month we'd bill you x and supply y services is that the way it worked that's exactly right and that was the beauty of the copier industry you know the residual income that came on service contracts unlike the car business when you when you sell a car, you know, you hope that they'll come back and use your service department in the copier industry. If they buy a copier or a multifunctional unit, 99%, 99.9% of the time you get a service contract with it. And therefore, we'd follow up and try to get the IT business also uh, on a contract basis. And I understand that that by the time you sold, your company was sort of in the 16 million dollar range. What proportion of the 16 million dollars was coming from kind of 
big, chunky, lumpy hardware sales like copiers versus the the sort of steady recurring contracts of service contracts? Well, the breakdowns, we were doing a little under $10 million on recurring revenue. So the rest of the of the revenue came through uh, hardware sales and uh, miscellaneous, you know, supply sales. Got it. And so what, what triggered you to want to sell this business? Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, the, the business had a large contract with uh, one of the school districts out here, Minneapolis Schools. It was a five-year contract. And the way schools would write contracts is that they would write them on a five-year, but they really only had a PO that was good for a year because every year they got to they gotta get their funding. And uh, during the during the term of our five year, the, our buyer had retired and a new buyer came in that uh, came from the private sector and he came in and decided to change everything and canceled our contract three years into it. Hmm. And so, I mean, how big a contract was this for you guys? Well, it was a contract of which I uh, signed off on the recourse on the lease equipment, so it had well over a million dollars worth of hardware out there. What does that um, mean, signing off on the recourse? I don't understand. Well, you know, if you sell, if you lease product to a, a client, typically the leasing company will hold the bag on that or the of the asset. But I signed a uh, called a personal guarantee on the loan, basically that if it went bad, they could recourse back to the dealership. Wow! So you had, and it was worth over a million dollars. Yes, yeah, so they paid us over fifty. I think it was close to sixty thousand a month, which included the maintenance portion along with uh, the hardware payment. So this deal went south, and, and and that was what triggered you to want to sell. Were there other sort of extenuating circumstances? Well, I kind of got away from the business a little bit, like I think some owners do when you're you're having success. And then I went through some some personal tr- uh, troubles, which uh, your business tends to go through the troubles with you, and. As I stepped away a little bit, it wasn't being ran as well as it should have been. And you lose a big contract like that when you don't have a lot of room. And that's a pretty big number. Uh, we had to pay the bank back about seven hundred grand, And uh, so, you know, that, that'll make it wobble a little bit. So that kind of caused a kind of a triggering event to start cleaning the business up and and looking to the future. Help me understand paying the bank back seven hundred grand. What, I don't understand that. Why, why would you have to pay the bank back? Well, it's kind of like uh, if you'll... You know, thirty thousand dollars on a car. You might be able to sell the car for ten, and you still owe the bank another twenty to to come even with it. Um, so I had to sell the equipment off, which we did, and then we still owed them another five hundred thousand, which we did payments on the five hundred till we were paid off with the bank. So you had to pay. You had to, this this equipment you had sold to the school board. Well, they, they had returned it all because they chose to go with another vendor and cancel us. So I had sold the equipment to the open market. But on pe- uh, you know pennies in the dollar, it sounds like correct. So you're left holding the bank. You so you're paying back this loan to the bank, and 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 but but there must have been other sort of factors that contributed. You could have just kind of continued to pay that back. Um, my understanding is something also happened in it, with the relationship you had with this bank that that caused you to kind of. Well, we all know what happened to banking along the way. You know, you used to be able to get a loan. Uh, they used to transfer money into your account. You, know, you could get 100000 on Friday and walk in the bank and sign for it on Monday. Those days were kind of gone. And with the loss of that contract, and the company had losses a couple years in a row, and we were looking at bank renewal time, and the bank had got a new credit manager that wasn't very fond of our company uh, based on the losses. You know, they just look at losses, not relationship. We were with them 17 years and uh, they informed me that they were going to uh, pull my loan. So, uh, so when you they, say losses, Corey, like wh- what was your operating margin on the sixteen million in revenue? 
Well, we lost uh, one year. I think it was six fifty, and the next year was uh, closer to four and a half. So the typical company in that industry, we should be running a, you know, if you're running, I think the average is six uh, net operating income, but a good company's running fourteen. Uh, of course, these are all private, so people show six, you know, all day long. But you were you were losing money to that. We were losing money, and, and the bank wasn't happy with that. And we looked at different ways to to come up with financing on the company. We were doing factoring at the time, which is very painful, as any anybody listening would would certainly agree with. Factoring essentially where you sell your receivables for a discount. That's correct. So you're factoring, your margins are well below uh, the industry average, and, and, and in fact, you're losing money. How come you weren't going bankrupt? I mean, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, man, you must have just been basically bankrupt. Well, we were actually, the margin on the business wasn't, wasn't bad. It was, it was the operating income was low from the fact that we had things a little out of whack. You know, we, we were overstaffed at the time when I got back involved, and we just had a lot of changes we had to do to survive. And so when you say margin, you're talking about the gross margin, meaning the, the, you know, the, the margin you make, uh, at the hard costs, the, the gross profit was in line. It was really the, the below-the-line costs were out of whack. Your Correct. People and so forth. Got it. The operating expenses were, were out of whack. So you came in to start, what, uh, after you'd taken this sort of time away from the business, you started to kind of right-size the business, to lay some staff off, I'm assuming? That's correct. Yeah. Got it. Some major cuts and some pretty hard ones. Uh, one was a director of sales that had been there for 10 years. And, so. how, and, and yet the bank still wanted to pull your loan, even though you were making some of these tough cuts. Yeah, they were just uh, this credit manager in this bank had really, he was on a, a hell bent to get rid of certain clients within the bank. My, my, banker of uh, 17 years was still there. And basically he was the president of a bank and lost all of his authority. So, you know, when they said they're going to pull the bank, I threw my keys over the table and said, here, you, you go collect all your money then. And uh, th that happened a year prior to them actually pulling it, you know, indefinitely. And so they pulled your loan, or at least they started to threaten to, to pull it. Um, eventually they did pull it though, right? Yeah, they pulled it, and, and when they threatened to pull it, I actually worked out and sold one of our branches that was north of the cities and uh, for just under a million dollars, and that went into the company. So when you talk about, you know, you're basically going bankrupt, well, we were at the time, and, you know, it took several maneuvers to make sure we didn't, and that was one of them. And we sold that uh, to a company that ultimately bought us, so that transaction kind of teed up the long-term, you know, purchase, but... Uh, how much did you still own, owe the bank after you deposited the, the million bucks from the buyer of the branch up north? How much did you still owe the bank at that point? Well, it, the million really went not right to the bank. The million went to payables to get caught up on payables. You know, you, you, we were stretching payables out so far. Um, we'd never missed a bank loan or bank payment ever in 17 years. Um, so we, in, in, when you're doing factoring, as you know, you've got to have sales to to keep the ball rolling, the cash flow, because yeah, if you don't have an invoice to sell to the bank, you don't have any money. So our sales were strong, which was the good part of the company, you know. And and again, having nine million recurring revenue doesn't hurt either. And how much were you giving up on the factoring? Like what proportion of your well, the way the factoring work is you'd uh, you'd sell the invoice to the bank or you'd, they would fund 90% of it and put 10% of it in a reserve. And then every month they would shore it up. So if you sold them a million dollars in invoices, your reserve had to be at uh, uh, at 100000 So as things got tight with us, they, they made us increase the reserve to 20%. 
So again, that, that what I couldn't believe is the bank would never understand that that just hurt cash flow more. You know, now they're holding 200,000 of our money on a million dollars. So we're only operating on 800. And um, so then what happened is at the end of the month, if you had any invoices that went over 90, they would pull it out of that reserve. And if they pulled it out of the reserve and the reserve went under 20% of what you owed them, you'd have to shore it up with your any money in your checking. So you really had to be on your receivables and you really had to uh, make sure sales continued. How did you get to the point where cash was so tight? I mean, as you look back on it now, two, three years later, lots of water under the bridge, are there things you would have done differently to to manage cash better? Like, what well, can we learn from this? Absolutely. And it's, I don't know if it's managing cash better or managing your business better. I, I, if I look at an imaging path over the years, I was poor at selecting CFOs. I uh, had four CFOs during that time, five actually, in uh, whether they're in experience or uh, it just I did a poor job on the CFO side. And you felt like somehow they let you down? Like in what way do you think the CFOs let you down? Well, I think, you know, you have a CFO, you're an entrepreneur, you, you need somebody in the CFO position that can tell you no, number one, and really hold you to the, you know, hold you to that stuff. And uh, so I think in that area, in other areas, uh, I guess uh, I just, I didn't manage that person well enough to know, to know what they were doing from a day-to-day basis. So when we get in trouble, it, it, it always seemed to be, you know, reacting rather than planning for the problem that should have been obvious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So take us through the story again. How do we get from the bank pressuring you uh, to come up with with money uh, that you don't have, frankly, to the sale of this business? Well, the bank had, uh, we, January of, we'd sold, let's say, I got to think about this. We had an offer in October 2013 from the buyer. And we kind of went through that process of a little bit of due diligence, going over the numbers together. And we were too far apart on the numbers to, to come up with, a, you know, successful sale at that time. And when you go down that road, it really messes with your head as an owner and you lose focus on things. So, What did, what did you think the business was worth, Corey? I mean, you were doing $16 million in sales, but losing money. Well, one thing I was, I always made sure in my industry is I always watched what people sold for. I, I always had a great idea. I mean, a I always was very sure about what the business was worth based on, they call it meth or machines in field, how many machines you have in field, or you go by a percentage of your of your uh, service contracts or your revenues. So I, I had a good feeling. I knew it was worth well over $10 million, even though it had, you know, the bottom line was poor. Uh, you would look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. And of course, if you're looking at selling a business based on an investor on paper, it's got no value. So I knew our only way out of it would be a strategic sale. And I knew that the market um, climate, you know, really was good for that at the time. When you say a strategic sale, you're referring to another company in, a, in the same industry you're in that could that could appreciate the, the service contract revenue that you have? Well, exactly. It's like when we sold our branch up in uh, north of the cities, we got the two companies involved. And it was really interesting. The one company that actually was located in that market um, – we get, we got into a due diligence with, and the whole goal was to close it fairly quickly. And then before we knew it, we were four months into it and it wasn't closed. And then the competitor had called me and asked if I was interested. And I, you know, the fact that the other one wasn't closed yet, I went and met with them and uh, talked to my attorney. He says, yeah, it's fine to do that. And I sat down and 
they said they wanted to buy it. And I said, well, if you want to buy it, you know, here's, here's the price and it needs to close within three weeks. And they actually had an LOI to me that afternoon and we closed within three weeks. Wow. This is the sale of the, the branch. Of the branch. Of the and yeah. how did you, how did you value that branch? No, no. The reason I brought it up, that was based on the revenue. We were doing roughly about a million dollars in service contracts there. And that's really what they bought. There was really no assets in that sale. It was and, all service contracts. And what did, what did you think that million dollars in service contracts was worth to the buyer? Oh, they, they were not in that market. So they launched into that market and I am told they did little under $5 million the next year in that market and total revenue. Yeah. So that was, that was huge for them. So it was a success, but, but when you had a million dollars in service contract revenue, I mean, were you, were you assuming it was worth one time service contract revenue or 80% yes. one time? Yes. Okay. Got it. And then the reason I brought up that is that, so having those two players involved uh, was really important because both players had the same product lines, both, players in, you know, in additional products also, but they had, you know, the Canon line, which I had and both players had the same operating system that I had. So when you have the same operating system, you know, doing due diligence is fairly easy because, you know, their, their employees know how to use the system. They know how to look for errors. They know how to, you know, run reports. When you say operating system, you're not talking about Microsoft windows. You're talking about the back end uh, financing system, correct? Yeah. It's called, it's called e-automate and, and this particular product that, that copier dealerships and office equipment dealerships use. Got it. And there's several of them, but that, that's the main one and kind of the Cadillac. So you're both on e-automate, so it was really easy for them to do the due diligence on the business. Correct. So again, so we sell this branch up at, up in the north. You get one-time service contract revenue. You're feeling pretty good, but you're still at a pressure. How did the, the the actual negotiation start with the the company about you know selling them the whole the whole enchilada? What, how did who started? Well, after that after that sale, in that, which was July of 2013. They came back and wanted to buy the whole company in October, as I mentioned earlier. And we went through that process and couldn't get the numbers. They just weren't good enough for me. Even though I was sucking wind, I, you know, I probably, you know, anybody else I think would have just sold. But, you know, I just knew it was worth more. And I knew we had the company on the right track, too. We were, you know, making huge, huge advances in regards to writing the ship. Corey, what was your service contract revenue October 13? Uh, in October, well... Well, it would have been the same, about the same, you know, close to ten million. So ten million. So, so I, you know, I think we did seventeen million in sales, a little over seventeen millions in sales in two thousand thirteen. Right, and so you sold it for you sold the first business for a million uh, in service contract revenue or one time service contract revenue. Yep. So you got ten million in service contract October thirteen. I'm assuming their offer was somewhere south of 10 million for you. Yeah, their offer is a couple million south of 10 million. And, and, and at the time, we were looking at rebranding the company, a new logo, and, and new company cars were needed. And, and so after we got out of negotiations, that's what we did. We, I dumped a, a fair amount of money, a couple hundred grand, into uh, changing the direction of the company in regards to how it looked so that it was more of that technology company and got, got away from the old logo that we had. and and purchase new company cars. I could see why your banker was losing sleep over you because here you are with like really, really, you know, bad financials from a, from a profitability standpoint, and you're out buying new trucks. Was there a bit of a, of well, the reality a, was our leases were up. We had to do something. Oh, okay. 
you know, so, you know, but yeah, the banker, but we were also showing the banker that, look, we believe in our business. It's going, we're going forward. We're making great advances. We're sitting down monthly with them at that time, showing them our financials. So we were, we were moving forward. And then we hit, so we walk away from that in October and in January, February, which are the worst months in that industry as far as cash flow, we run into our cash flow problem, which I run into every year for seven, 18 years. And I go to the bank and I said, you know, we're going to need some cash. And they they have a fit and say, I don't understand why. And I said, because we do every year. And the, the banker didn't understand it, but they came up and they gave us a bridge loan of $300,000 to get it through that period. But what they did is they took $20,000 a week. We paid a hundred grand back a month on that, on that loan. And of course, in 90 days, we're broke again. And the, the banker can't understand why. And I'm like, well, you took every penny we got. <laughs> back and you know not much has changed that's that's why we're broke and that's when we had the conversation with them they gave us the 300,000 in in January so we're going to do this but we're also want you to know and they didn't even come out to my office they did it over the phone this credit guy and he just didn't have the balls and he says we're going to pull your financing July 1 we're not going to renew and I said well that's good to hear you know thanks very much (laughs) And what was the – did you have an operating line with them? What, what, what was the financing they were pulling? Well, we, they had my building. I had a building loan with them. That was a, about a million four. Um, but that was secured by the, the building, of course. And then we had another million dollars, which was our basically our factory line. So, I mean, our receivables were, receivables were running about a little over a million a month. And um, so that's – again, that's how we got our money. It was to sell an invoice, so we we didn't even have an operating line at that time. And so, what did what what went through your head when when other than you know a few choice four letter words? What what went through your head after you you got that message from the credit? Well, master? I thought, how big a Captain Morgan's can I drink? <laughs> what? Well, we I knew we had to we knew we had to get a new bank, and we we had already started looking at banks. It wasn't like I didn't feel this was coming. But who's going to bank your your business given the kind of current economics of it? Well, there's there's two there's lots of things, uh, John, that we were looking at at that time. We were looking at different factoring companies that would take because this factoring was being done at the bank, so the bank was was involved in the factoring. So we were looking at different factoring companies that would take the bank's factoring out, so the bank would be off the hook and they would just keep us still. And and we we went down that road and talked to several traditional factoring companies. Uh, the problem with that factoring companies want an invoice that so our service contracts we build a month in advance. Okay, so that invoice did not qualify for factoring because they will only buy it once it's a solid invoice, and in their mind, that invoice would only be good thirty days later after the services were provided. So that caused a real problem in trying to move to another factoring company. So you're out on the hunt for new financing. It's it's April first. You paid back the three hundred grand. You know that you've got this deadline on July thirty first um, looming. Take us through the next few months. I mean, at what point did you get? Did you restart negotiations with the buyer? Well, we had. Uh that news came to us right in January about pulling our loan after they, you know, when they, even though they gave us that money, they, they gave us that information in January. So we started right away vetting banks. So we had about 12 of them. And at the end, we did have a bank that would take us based on our performa, hitting the performa that we gave them, you know, as we were, you know, courting these banks, you have to give them your performance, you know, your future performance. And, 
you know, they said based on hitting these numbers, you know, you know, we're, we feel good about it. Now we would have had to hit those numbers perfectly, or we'd have been in trouble again come the end of the year again with the new bank. So what happened in the meantime? In May, I get a full, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling on keeping up with creditors and trying to keep from, you know, people to know, you know, kind of what shape imaging pass in. But it was really kind of no secret. You know, the I, I would say the executives at the competitors kind of knew, you know, how tight things were because, you know, they, they deal with the same vendors that we do. And um, so what happened is I'm sitting down. I got a call an email saying, you know, we'd like to talk to you again. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm interested. Last time I had got kind of out of the game and we've just made all these changes. We've the, got great call, advances going on. The call came from the buyer. What's the company name? Uh, Loeffler. L-O-F-F-L-E-R. Okay. So you get a call from Loeffler, who was the one who gave you the original offer for for $8 million for the $10 million in service contracts. Yeah, kind of a small backdrop there. I actually started their copier division, left them, and started my company. So, and then 18 years later, they come and buy me. Everything comes full circle. So they called you and said, "Look, we want to come have another conversation." You're like, "Well, we made all these changes. Then what?" Uh, and then I was sitting down talking to a friend of mine at my home, and I was telling him how tight cash was, and uh, that I had a buyer, you know, that's looking at buying my company. And I said, "I." I'm thinking strongly that I may have to do it, but I've got to somehow make sure that I keep the blood out of the water and uh, that we keep customers happy. And and But I'm short on cash. And he looked at me, he's a really good friend of mine. He says, what kind of money do you need? And I said, well, I need about three to 500 grand. And uh, I said, so, and my bank won't give me another loan. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I got 500 grand you can have. But he says, I got to have it back by September, Corey. <laughs> and I just about fell out of my chair. Because I, I had no idea he had that kind of cash sitting around. And um, so we, I told him, I said, look, John, I wouldn't take the money. I haven't taken anybody's money in 18 years. But I said, I can guarantee you I can have an LOI in 10 days and have it sold within 90. And I called the buyer back the next day. Uh, John transferred the money. We got caught up with creditors, called the buyer back, and we got into negotiations. And that was in May, like May, first week of May. Wow, that's a great friend to have. So you think? Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're talking to the Loeffler guys who had, again, uh, kind of given you a lowball offer. Uh, how did their tune change the, I mean, through the, the negotiations the next time? Had, had they increased what they were willing to pay for that service contract revenue? Well, when they called me, they said they were willing to step up to where I was before that the success of the branch up in, in St. Cloud, the one they bought, was so successful, and they were so comfortable with the information we provided. You know, on these acquisitions, people are always a little leery on how good is your information, and I, that was kind of a good way to prove to them when they purchased that, that, you know, we did business fairly well, and, and we're really good on our contracts, and the information was correct, and so what, we, what happened, and I have to give a huge amount of credit to my son Ryan who came into the business six years prior uh, Ryan had uh, put together helped put together numbers on the company and what we did is we put a performer together as if it was owned by them so we did the work for them and said look you buy us here's all the cuts and here's your bottom line at the end of the day so we reworked the numbers to show them 
you know, where, where, where they're going to benefit from this acquisition also. Corey, I just want to take a second and, and, and talk to built to sell radio listeners about this. Cause it's such an important point, uh, that when you are going into negotiation, um, obviously the buyer is going to want to see your financials, but, but it's, it's, it's a, such a great strategy that you took to actually project what the business would do in their hands. Of course, that's the operating sort of, uh, the lens they're going to be looking at this. So what cuts can we make? What costs can we pull out? Uh, what additional revenue can we capture because of our assets, et cetera, and giving them a projected performa based on how it would perform in their hands, such a critical move. And it sounds like that's, that was a big part of this negotiation for you guys. Well, that, that is to me is number one. When I look at this, that's the best thing we did. I mean, because all buyers, you know, they're going to act like they don't really care about what you give them because uh, they're going to, they're going to tell you, we're going to do it on our own and that's fine. But here's the reality there's going to be things they're going to see in what you put together for them that they didn't think of. And, and you want them to think of those things, you know, and, and they don't want you to know that they know it, by the way, they, they know what they're looking for. And they're hoping that the seller doesn't realize that that's an ad back or a huge value. So it was really good to go through the whole process. A, I mean, we could show exactly how quickly they could, could, uh, cause you're asking them to buy you. And then most people are looking for a three to four year payback. And, you know, we were asking those questions up front. What are you looking for to quick of a return on your money? And so we had those kind of ideas, what they wanted. So, you know, looking at the numbers and making sure that that really showed them that they could get the money back. It was highly important. So talk, talk about the negotiation itself. So they say, look, we're willing to meet you where you were before when we were talking back in, uh, in October. Um, where does it go from there? I mean, did you get an LOI and basically sign off? Was there more back and forth on the negotiation? Well, yeah. In fact, I told them, I said, look, I, I'm glad you guys are interested. I'm still going to call the other competitor and, and, and get them in the mix. And they didn't like that. And I said, well, we, one way you can eliminate that is, you know, you can have an exclusive LOI to me uh, for, you know, for the dollar amount that I'm looking for. And then I won't invite them. And I'd already called and invited the the other player in and they were waiting for information from me. And once I got the exclusive LOI, I had to call the, the other competitor back and say, everything's on hold for now. Um, I'm still interested, but I've got to give this other buyer an opportunity because they put an exclusive together. And so you said you gave Loeffler your price and said, this is what I need. Yeah, we worked it and said, here's where we, we feel the number is going to be. And we ended up fairly close to that number. Interesting. Uh, but what was interesting is, you know, that getting to that number came a couple different ways. You know, they structured a, a non-compete around it. Uh, that number was fairly large to get to that number. They structured a consulting contract. So they were looking at ways that would work for their financials, for their bank, too. So and we, we had quite a few conversations to kind of figure out what they were looking for and how it would work. And, of course, I had to look at all the tax consequences about getting paid out different ways, too. Because that, that's a huge effect. Sure. So the original offer back in, in, in fall of 2013 was around $8 million. I understand that eventually... Yeah, it was close. Yeah, it was closer to 7 Yeah, seven five something like that. Seven five. Okay. And I understand eventually it sold for north of 10 yep. Um And so of that, you know, you mentioned there was obviously some cash involved. They also paid you... Uh, for a non-compete, maybe you can walk through for folks what, what it means to be paid for a non-compete. Are you getting a lump sum or is it is a portion of money over time that you agree not to compete with them? Well, I get a portion of money over time not to compete with them. And uh, so they structured that over five years, that payment. 
And uh, the non-compete is actually for 10 years. And I knew at the time I had no in- interest in going back into the industry. It, it had changed so much for a guy my age. Now, my son's a little different, uh, but I knew I wasn't going to go back into the industry. So I had no problem signing that. So you get the proceeds, you get some cash up, you get the non-compete. What, what other sort of fancy footwork did they do to come up with the price? Well, you know, they, if I think hard on it, you know, they, they, they acquired the cars and, and certain assets and contracts they took that we owed money on. So there's lots of different things you got to look at when you're selling. And, and uh, you know, they took over, I think we had our uh, operating system on a lease, you know. So you looked at all the different contracts they would acquire which all affect on, you know, are you going to pay for that after they pay you or are you gonna, is that going to be included? So those are things that if you miss them, they can cost you a lot of money. So you get this sale done with Loeffler and you got this buddy who gave you the 500 grand to get you through to ensure in your own words to uh, ensure they didn't, you know, see blood in the water. Um, how did that, that repayment of that check happen? And, and how well, I, we just did, I just did a flat 7%. I gave him 35 grand. And it was worth every single penny. And was that was that uh, on your doing? Did did he ask for an interest rate or he he, he, did, he 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 didn't want an interest rate. He didn't want to write up a contract. I had my attorney write up a contract, uh, promissory note to him, and I put in seven percent. I just thought it was fair. Uh, it's not a situation where you want to negotiate with a friend that's uh, you know basically giving you a life jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was he was happy with it. He had his money back quickly. Uh, he was paid back, you know, July 2nd or whatever it was. Uh, so the money was only out of the bank. And I think we only used 380000 of it. Um, and we would transfer what we needed at the time. So, but it was having the access was important. Describe, describe if you could, the, the feeling of repaying that money. Well, I'll tell you, if, if for those that are listening that may be up against the wall, I mean, you have that feeling of, I mean, I think a, a tear came to my eye when he offered me the money. And paying him back felt obviously very in debt to this guy. And, and he doesn't think anything of it. <laughs> he doesn't like to hear about it and doesn't, you know, doesn't think a single thing about it. And that's called a really good friend. But uh, he's he's a very unique individual. We all need one of those in our lives from time to time. Thanks for, for sharing that, Corey. T- talk about life since the sale. You got this, you know, the big check, and, and uh, uh, how has life t- changed for you since since selling the company? Well, it's really interesting because I, I would business in my business was really my hobby. I'm not much of a golfer. I'm ADD, so I lose my ball all the time and talk through my swing. But um, so I really not having a hobby. It's been, it's been hard. It's, it's been two years of trying to figure out, you know, uh, when does the anxiety go away? I, I, my, that friend that I recently, that gave me the money, he retired uh, a couple months ago and we had coffee and he says, so when's it, when's it stop, Corey? And I knew just what he was saying. I said, it doesn't, John, it's who you are. The anxiety doesn't go away. And, uh, so although I'm less stressed about things, I still have this need to, to be involved in things. And I, I'm an investor now. I've got uh, some investments in some different companies and real estate and things like that. And, uh, I'm looking at a new venture with Ryan, uh, working for Ryan and I'm pretty excited about that, but it's, it's really strange because when people ask what you do, it's a hard question to answer that you're retired because I retired at 53. They look at you like, they don't believe you. And then all of a sudden you're not that interesting anymore. <laughs> you're not very interesting because you're really not doing anything. You use the word anxiety. That's an interesting word. What are you anxious about? 
Well, I just think it's all, I'm always anxious. So I, I, I like being involved in things and that's why I liked her business. This is going to sound really strange as, as bad as it was when the company was screwed up. I never had so much, um, such a rewarding feeling to change things and be able to affect it. And I actually enjoyed doing that. It would have been a lot more fun if it was somebody else's company going through that. <laughs> but, um, but you just kind of have this nine feeling you should be doing something. Yeah, that sense of, of making bold changes gave you that energy, that adrenaline rush that, that sounds like you, you, you thrive on. Yeah. So the, the life after business is a, a really interesting thing. And having read Finishing Big, books like that, you start to see that, you know, what you did wasn't, it wasn't so out of the, it wasn't so non-normal, it wasn't, it was more normal than you think. But there's certain things I'm sure I could have done to put myself in a different position when I retired. Corey, it's a great book. I should I should draw it out. Uh, you're you're recommending the book uh, Finish Big. Bo Burlingham, one of the best writers on entrepreneurship, wrote Small Giants, Staking the Outcome with with Jack Stack. Wrote used to write for for Inc. Um, just a tremendous tremendous uh, uh, you know writer and uh, storyteller. So so if you haven't read Finish Big, I, I'd certainly encourage you to pick a copy up. It's uh, it's a great book and Corey, oh, it's fantastic, fantastic. You are a case study. Uh, for sure in, in that. I so appreciate you spending the time with us today, Corey. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.